The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. It's good to see you all this morning, and it's good that those who are watching can join us as we now go to God's Word. This morning, we return to our series in 1 Peter, and I just want to reorient us to what we've looked at already so far. Peter has written to his readers, and he's reminded them that they are born again to a living hope, that you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And then, in chapter 1, verse 13, all the way to chapter 2, verse 3, he's given five commands, five imperatives, and we've looked at four of the five. The four are, believers are to set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 13. And then chapter 1, verse 15, believers are to be holy as their heavenly Father is holy. There's to be a fatherly resemblance in His children. And then in chapter 1, verse 17, believers are to have attitudes characterized by fear and reverence for God. And then the fourth imperative is in 122, which was about four weeks ago, where believers are to love one another earnestly with a pure heart. And now that leads us to our fifth imperative in 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3. So would you join me as we pray and ask God for help? Father in heaven, we need your help this morning. We need the power of your spirit to come so that we see your truth as it ought to be seen, so that we understand your word the way it ought to be understood, so that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers. And so come in the power of your spirit, awaken our hearts to help us to see and to taste and to become more like your son, Jesus. We ask all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. When our first child was born many years ago now, we spent seven days in the hospital. She was born down at HCMC, Hennepin County Medical Center, I think, down in South Minneapolis, and we spent a total of seven days because she had trouble feeding. And we didn't know that at the time as first-time parents, but every drop of milk counts in those early days. As parents, you cheer on all the different milestones that your children hit. You know, you've graduated or you've become potty trained, and that's the very first milestone. In those early days, you want your baby to get back to their birth weight. It's, they're born, they're, you know, six pounds, nine pounds, whatever it is, and then they drop a few ounces, and then they get back to their birth weight, and that's the first of many little milestones that you cheer on. Well, everything in those early days is geared towards getting sufficient physical nourishment for that baby. This tiny human, weighing less than an average house cat, needs every single drop of milk as it can possibly get. And as a parent, and for those who are parents or have been parents or grandparents, you know sort of the hypersensitivity that comes in those early days. You do whatever you can so that they get pure milk. 
the diet of the mom can affect the quality of the milk, or you want to get the very best formula. You know, you don't buy your discount formula for that first baby. You boil to disinfect that pacifier. You know, all of these things go away with the second and third and fourth child, but for that very first one, you take all the necessary precautions. Why? Because we want our children to grow up and to develop and to be healthy. And in many ways, that's what Peter is now coming to his readers and saying. He wants them to grow up spiritually healthy. We see that in actually chapter 2, verse 2. He wants them to grow up into salvation so that they would obtain it. And so in the same way that a parent puts aside all the things that might stunt the growth of their child. Whatever bacterias or lead poisoning or things that might be in the water, you do all that you can to make sure your child is getting the appropriate spiritual nourishment. And Peter is writing so that his readers would do the same. And he has two kind of things in view that stunt a spiritual growth. He, he points out spiritual poison in verse 1 and then insufficient spiritual nourishment in verses 2 and 3. And both of these threaten the maturity of believers. And he's continuing the previous metaphor. If you'll remember in chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, we were told that believers have been born again by the living and abiding word of God so that we would love one another. And now that we've been born, now how should we live? And he calls us to live as spiritual newborn babies. And the main point of our passage this morning is this. Believers are to continually put away all of the poisonous attitudes and actions that would stunt our love and our growth and instead drink deeply and eagerly from God's word. We're to drink deeply and eagerly from God's word. Stay away from the things that are going to cause you to develop abnormally and instead have a spiritual attitude like that of a thirsty and hungry infant. And I think Peter's aim is captured in a slogan that I heard. There's a beer commercial, and I'm not condoning beer drinking at all, but there's a beer commercial where a man looks at the camera and he says, stay thirsty, my friends. And in the very same way, Peter is saying to his readers, stay thirsty, not for beer, but for God's word, for this pure spiritual milk. Don't be satisfied and satiated, but stay thirsty. And so the two main halves of this text are in verse 1, put away the poison, and then verse 2 and 3, pursue the pure milk. So look with me at verse 1. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The first thing we want to notice is the so or the therefore, which harkens back to the previous passage, which we talked about a little bit already. The previous passage, that main command was love one another with an earnest love because you've been born again, because you're part of God's family. Love each other because that's who we are. And now he wants them to put away these things. And the point here is that dandelions don't grow from tomato seeds. Weeds don't grow from the pure spirit, don't grow from the living and abiding word of God. Instead, gospel seeds grow gracious and loving people. And so he says, if you've been born again by this living and abiding word, 
put away the things that don't characterize believers or shouldn't characterize believers. This opening participle of putting away or rid yourselves is this picture of stripping off all these filthy clothes or stripping off sins that would entangle us. We see that in Colossians 3.8. But now you must put them all away. That's this put away or rid yourself of anger, malice, wrath, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. It would be a little bit like this. If you're in the medical field, maybe you work in a long-term care facility or at a hospital, and you go in your scrubs and your mask and your mask and all of those things, and what, what do you do when you come home? You strip away all of those things that could potentially be infected. You might even disinfect prior to hugging your family or your parents or your grandchildren because you want to get off all the things that could be infected. And there's the same picture here, rid yourself, put away these things. There's a very active setting aside of sinful attitudes and actions that would compromise a Christian's character. But not only compromise a Christian's character, but actually stunt the growth and the love and the tenderness within a Christian community. You'll notice that these things, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, are not the things that the pagans would do, like sexual morality. He doesn't mention those, but he's mentioning things that would be tempting to happen within a Christian family. Now, let's look at each of these. Malice. This could be translated as wickedness. It's sort of an all-encompassing phrase. Anything of ill will directed towards others. It could be as simple as a holding a grudge or indifference to others, or being mean-spirited. It's this all-encompassing term for depravity. It's a little bit like Peter saying, stay away from lead poisoning. It's dangerous. You might not detect it, but it's going to be deadly. And then we see all deceit. This is primarily a sin of the tongue, hiding the truth, dishonesty. In a sense, malice and deceit are sort of these overarching kind of broad terms, and then Peter gets more specific with hypocrisy and envy. Hypocrisy is this, could be translated insincerity or an inconsistency in one's life and beliefs. But it's not just of being sort of fake, you know, believing one thing and acting another way, but you can even believe something and act in accordance with that, but still be self-deceived. Matthew 23, 15 uses the same word. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Jesus calls them hypocrites. Why? For you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. So these Pharisees are acting inconsistently with what they believe, and yet they're still leading people ultimately to hell. So these hypocrites are sincere but self-deceived. And then we see envy. Not only the individual sort of harboring of envy, like I I wish I had what you had or I don't like that you have what you have, but it also becomes a bit of a gateway drug to the next one, which is slander. It gives birth to resentment and bitterness so that we're unable to rejoice with those who rejoice or weep with those who weep, but we actually turn that on its head uh, and upside down. So that if we're envious and jealous, not only do I not rejoice when you rejoice, but I actually rejoice when you weep, and I weep when you rejoice. 
And then we see slander, speaking poorly of others, spreading false stories, disparaging one another. We can see that this entire list has everything to do with Christian community. How we relate to one another is really important. So he's already said love one another with an earnest love because of who caused you to be born again, because of this living and abiding word that's at work in you. But now put away the things that would poison this community. They pull and strain at the fabric of Christian love. It's like if you're growing a garden, you don't just throw a handful of rocks into that garden and dig it in, because that's going to stunt the growth of the garden. These attitudes and actions could be likened to pouring a poison into the shared well of Christian community, in which we all go to draw water, to drink, and to cook with, and to use throughout the day. And yet, what has become a source of life should be a source of life, this love within the Christian community becomes a source of sickness and illness and division. Have you ever heard of a church that split over the color of its carpet? They couldn't decide? Well, my guess is the poison of these things had gotten into the water, the shared water of that community long before they fought over the color of the carpet. And so this is a good word for us this morning, a sobering reality, because it's possible for a church like ours, where we have most people who are theologically like-minded, who all go to the same church, who all live in the same state, who all love Jesus, to still be tempted to poison the shared community well by our attitudes and actions. And we may even do it unintentionally with legitimate concerns or things that we have questions about. And yet here is this call that we not lose sight of how our lives are to be characterized because we've been born again by the living and abiding word and we are God's people to live according to how he commands. And so we're to love one another. And so if we go back to this seed metaphor We're born of God's living and abiding word, so we need to continually weed the garden, protect against critters and animals and bugs and pesticides and other threats to this shared brotherly love that we have within the church. And this gets really kind of down into the weeds for us. When we have concerns about another brother or sister, maybe something they post, maybe something that we heard or something we're aware of, do we bring it to them? Or do we whisper it behind the scenes? Do we share it as a prayer request in a public setting only to gossip about them? If we have concerns about something, I want to encourage you, you can bring those, if it's about the church, to your elders. We would love to engage you about those things. But the thing we want to guard against as a Christian community, as the church, as this local expression of the body, is to not let malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy take root because those are going to give birth, only grow thorny sins. And one of the primary ways I think we can do this is to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger and to judge one another charitably. We don't want to sow seeds of discord or judge uncharitably, but rather call one another to love. And I think in a culture where suspicions run rampant? Are you on this side or this side? How are you gonna vote? Are you gonna vote this way or that way? How are you thinking about this issue or that? What are you posting on social media? Whatever it may be, 
we could develop suspicions against one another. And the thing I want to call us to is that we put those things aside, that we strip them off so that when we gather together, what's going to characterize us? John 13, 35, by this the world will know that you are my disciples when you have love for one another. Our evangelism will be stunted by how well or not we love one another. So Peter calls his readers to put aside these poisonous attitudes and actions. Don't let them characterize your life. Don't let them characterize our corporate body. Don't let these things go unchecked. And it's a good reminder for all of us to put these things aside. Now look with me at verses two and three when we now come to this pursue pure milk. Verse two says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So what is this pure milk that he has in view here? I believe that he's talking about God's word. The word spiritual that's used here in verse 2 is different than the typical word used for spiritual that you would see actually in chapter 2, verse 5, where it says you're being built up as a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices. The word there is different than the one used in verse 2. The one in verse 2 is a very unusual word, which is the one that shows up in Romans 12, 1, to offer spiritual sacrifices and could be translated reasonable or rational. And so this milk is the reasonable and rational word of God. The word is logikon, which is closely connected with logos. So it's not mystical like some society with secret codes and incense and chanting, but it's God's word. It's reasonable. And we can see from the passage that the milk of God's word causes Christians to grow up into salvation. It's like the old milk commercial. It does the body good. And so we're to come and drink of this pure spiritual milk. It's pure. It's without contamination. Every mother knows that based on their diet, the milk is different. And we want pure milk. Believers long for the pure spiritual milk of God's word. Born again infants beloved by God, now come to him and find their sole spiritual nourishment. That's the picture here, that believers are to be like newborn babies that come to God for all of their spiritual nourishment. Elsewhere in the Bible, particularly 1 Corinthians 3.2 and Hebrews 5.12, it talks about milk actually as something you want to move beyond, right? It's for the immature, and you want to move on to the meat of the word. But that's not what Peter has in mind. Here, he has this picture of being like a newborn baby. All that you need is this pure spiritual milk. Find your complete dependence upon this milk. Crave and desire it for your complete nourishment. I remember in those early days uh, when you know, feedings were timed and naps were on a schedule and my wife would sometimes plan kind of an errand. So she would go out, but she would have to get back by a certain time so baby would wake up and then she would have to feed. And there would be those times where we would mistime it or the baby would wake up early 
And so now I have this crying infant, no backup milk, and I'm just waiting for mom. And this baby is screaming and insatiable. And if this baby was big enough, it would hurt me in order to get milk. Thankfully, it's not very big. But this baby wants nothing else. Nothing else is going to soothe this child except for milk. And that's the picture that Peter's painting for us. Are we like that when it comes to God's word? Are we like that where we're unsatiable? Where we're constantly longing and longing and wanting more of God and his word. That we're longing for it. That we want more of it. That we're never satisfied. That we want more and more of what God reveals in his book. Or do we say, well, I read it before. You know, I've read it last week. Or it's been a few days. But I, I, I haven't gotten around to it lately. What Peter's getting at is we are to have this deep longing for God's word like a newborn baby has longing for milk so that we get all of our spiritual nourishment. Do we have a take it or leave it attitude with God's word and corporate worship and preaching or do we hunger for it? Do we long for it? And then if you look with me at verse three, it says, it's this quotation Slightly altered from Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Peter later on quotes further from Psalm 34 in 1 Peter 2, 10 to 12. And so the whole of the psalm is probably in view. And this psalm is the perfect psalm for Peter's readers right now. It talks about confidence in God's great deliverance for a people who are suffering, who feel marginalized, who feel pushed aside, who are persecuted and hurting. He says, don't forget God saves those who are crushed in spirit. He will surely come through. And so this psalm reinforces Peter's call to crave for God's word. And the point of verse three is to remind his readers that if in fact they have tasted that the Lord is good, that they then continue to come to this word. The answer is implied, if you have, and he knows you have, so continually come. If you've seen the goodness of God, if you're now born again by this living and abiding word, you've tasted of the goodness of God, that your sins have been washed away, that you have no more guilt, no more shame. Your sins are as far as the east is from the west. When you come before God, you have free, complete, unfettered access to the throne of grace. You've tasted of this goodness. All of the sins that you've committed in your youth or in later adulthood, God washes away. You don't carry that around in your backpack hoping to atone for it. It has been paid for. If you've tasted of this goodness and you have, brothers and sisters, then he wants you to come, come and long for this pure spiritual milk. Get more and more of God's goodness. Come back to him for all of your spiritual nourishment. He's not calling them to choke down something that they don't want. Instead, he says, come, Here's this perfectly baked slice of cheesecake with salted caramel on top and fresh whipped cream and taste one bite of it and then I'm gonna give you the rest of the slice. Do you want it? Come and partake of what is truly good. And so this is a reminder, a call for God's people. Once you've tasted of God's goodness to come back to it. It's like that refreshing glass of lemonade. You have one sip and you can't wait to finish the glass, or that first piece of watermelon, 
in summer and you taste that first piece and you could eat the whole thing. He's saying, it's like that. You've tasted of God's goodness. Why wouldn't you eat more? Come, let's be a people that's characterized for longing for these, this pure spiritual milk. Now, he also says its purpose is so that you would grow up to salvation. Peter describes salvation as something that Christians grow up into or that's obtained at a later time. There's this already and not yet dynamic. We've seen it already, came in chapter one, verse five, that you're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so spiritual growth, maturity, is essential to finding that end time salvation for the believer. Salvation is not just a ticket, whether you have it or you don't, but it's a trajectory of ongoing spiritual growth and maturity until the final consummation of that journey. It's a little bit like Pilgrim's Progress. Once Christian read God's word, he didn't immediately transfer into the celestial city, but he was on the pathway, on the journey towards the celestial city. And so believers were to put off the things that would stunt our personal growth and long for the pure spiritual milk of God's word so that we find our soul's satisfaction met by God himself. So how do we apply these things to us as a people this morning? Well, we need to beware not only of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander that threatens this Christian community, our personal responsibilities in that to guard against this discord and division that would be birthed. But I think we also need to be aware of sort of the poisonous worldly philosophies that lace the good spiritual milk of the word. Whether it's the godless philosophies that are trying to advance anarchy in our society or chaos or ignite a race war or those that are trying to tear apart the fabric of the family, of the home, of our society, undermining the framework of Christian families even. Advancing radical LGBTQ agendas, those who are marshalling anti-government, anti-police, anti-reason arguments. There's even been a push to to combat and and have anti-STEM initiatives. So science, technology, engineering, and math, saying that even those things are somehow biased. And so there are these realities that are creeping into the church, trying to undo the very notion of male and female. We must be aware that the world's ideas are attempting to creep into the church, and Christians could be tempted to buy into these philosophies. And then we start dividing along various lines. Are you for this or against that? Are you in this tribe or that? What do you believe about this or the other? And then malice and deceit and hypocrisy get cultivated within the church body. We can't allow that to happen. So how do we combat it? We march to this book. These are our marching orders as a people. It's God's word. We have to continually come back again and again to God's word. Everything that we read, we have to first Put it through the sieve of God's word. What does God's word say about these things so that we're not blown according to the cultural wind, so that we're not swayed with wherever the world goes? Just like a baby comes again to milk, God's people are again and again to find our pure 
milk, this spiritual nourishment in God's word. It would be ridiculous to see a three-month-old baby holding a carrot, trying to find nourishment in eating that carrot. It can't do it. And in the same way for believers, we can't find our spiritual nourishment from the world in the news articles or in Twitter or wherever else we might be finding it. CNN or Fox News, we can't find our spiritual nourishment in those places. It has to come back again and again to God's word. This is our sole source of spiritual nourishment so that we don't let all of these foreign things creep in and we want the pure spiritual milk of God's word. We need to hold God's word above all other ideologies, above all other slogans, above all other movements so that it would be the singular source, the main source that shapes and informs our instincts and our hearts and mind. But for there there are those who are watching this morning and perhaps you don't normally go to Bethlehem and perhaps some who are gathered here this morning where you've never tasted of God's goodness. You don't even know what we're talking about. You don't know what it means to live without guilt or shame. You don't know what Christ has done. Why is he even important? Why do we say his name so much? Why is that even significant? And we're calling you to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. There is so much sweetness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and see how good God is in providing a way of escape for sinners. You don't have to do anything, but you have to entrust everything to him. You can't earn it, but it's a free gift. And we are calling you to come this morning and entrust your soul to the one who will never disappoint. His goodness is on display in the cross for sinners and we can find hope and life in him. You might ask, well, how how can I taste of this goodness if I never have? I would say begin in the Gospel of John. Read the Gospel of John beginning to end because the book of the Gospel of John was written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. And that's what we want. We want you to taste of true life in the name of Jesus. So come and drink. For believers, as we long for this pure spiritual milk, it would be very easy for me to just apply this and say, now read your Bible more. You know, I know you've fallen behind in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, so catch up, you know, 42 chapters to read so that you're back on schedule or memorize more. But really, the the call is not this oppressive thing because I think so often we get the mechanics, we get stuck in the mechanics rather than the purpose. I read this quote by Paul Miller in this book, Praying Life, and I found it really helpful. He's talking about why Christians struggle with prayer, but I think it equally applies to reading God's word. He says this, oddly enough, many people struggle to learn how to pray because they're focusing on prayer and not on God. And I think that can also be true of us. We focus on the mechanics of Bible reading, that I need to catch up 42 chapters to be back on schedule, or I have my 16 highlighters, and I like to underline certain words, and all of that could be good, but those are tools so that we would come and taste of God's goodness, that we would bask in his presence, that we would see his promises afresh, that we would read of his sovereignty and have rock-hard foundations rebuilt 
built for us, knowing that God is sovereign, that we would come again and again and say, God loves me. Despite what I feel, I am a beloved child of God, that we would come back again and taste of this sweetness so that we would see God's goodness. Rather than checking the box just for discipline's sake, that we would come and taste of his goodness afresh. We would meditate on his commands, basking in his promises, receiving his forgiveness. I have in view children this morning. We want you too to come and taste and see and to see God's goodness. And I think there's a moment for every child where I eat what my parents put in front of me, and so that's just what I eat, to now I have opinions about what I like. You know, at, at our house, when it's your birthday, you get to pick the meal. And it's interesting to see how those preferences change over time. Because very often, you eat what I like in my house, or what my wife likes, because that's what we make. But now, on your birthday, you get to pick what you want. And I have in view children. We want you, not just because your parents have put it in front of you, but we want you to be able to come and taste and see that the Lord is good, that you would know that God is good, that God is big, that God is strong, and that he loves and cares for you, and that you too would put your hope and trust in him. Reading the Bible on your own, there's no greater joy than for a Christian parent to see their kids reading God's word on their own regularly, finding spiritual nourishment from reading God's word. And as God's people, we're also called to preach this good news. And it calls to mind uh, a book, not by Jonathan Edwards, but by Dr. Seuss. And it, it goes like this. And, and I want us to have this relentlessness that this Sam character has. You don't like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam I am. Well, could you, would you with a goat? I would not, could not with a goat. Would you, could you on a boat? And then you, you, you kind of know how it goes. On a boat, with a goat, in the rain, on a train, in a tree, you let me be. I do not like them in a box or with a fox or in a house or with a mouse. I don't like them here or there. I don't like them anywhere. But then what does Sam say? He says, you do not like them, so you say, try them, try them, and you may. Try them, and you may, I say. And that's what we want to have because we know how the end of the story goes. He comes to love green eggs and ham. And so if Sam is so relentless in getting his friend to try something that he loves, how much more should God's people be even more relentless, winsome, bold, in calling people, try him, try him. Jesus will never let you down. He is sufficient. He is good. He has done everything that you need so that you would find forgiveness of sins, that you could have eternal life, that you could have peace in the midst of the storm, that you could have calm and comfort, even when people around you might be dying or the world is burning. Oh, that God's people would have this renewed zeal, this renewed relentlessness like Sam in saying, try him, try him, that we would be like Sam. In calling people who do not yet know Jesus, the world lacks very many answers right now, even more than a few months ago. The world is falling apart in some ways, and, and, and who knows what will happen. And yet we have the words of life. We have the good news of Jesus Christ, and we could hoard the milk at home, but there's more than enough to share 
And oh, that we would call other people to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, that we would be renewed in our evangelistic zeal. We've been on this note for quite a while. And I, I see us growing, and I think there's more, much more room to grow. Oh, one more degree, one more step that we as a people would be eager and winsome and bold. Not because we're going to ask you to count, oh, how many people did you share the gospel with this week? Oh, but rather, I've tasted of something so glorious. I can't wait for you to taste it. I can't wait for you to try. can't wait for you to see how good God is. That's what we want to be this morning. And I, and I have in view fathers or those who couldn't be fathers, perhaps even, or grandfathers. What would be our lasting legacy? Perhaps you want to be a dad that's known for teaching your boys how to hunt or to help them get ahead or leaving them uh, uh, inheritance, financial stability. All those things might be good. But oh, that the dads and grandfathers would leave the legacy of those who are like newborn infants, who long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, that your children and your grandchildren would say, oh, I want daddy's or grandpa's Bible because I know he read it inside and out and he has notes and all of those things, that we would leave a legacy for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren so that they would see that we were shaped by God's word. And for those who can't be fathers, you too can be a spiritual father and leave a legacy as one who loves God's word and builds that into the lives of others. And the great news is that Jesus is doing this work. We will indeed reach salvation. The work he began in each one of us, he will bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we're not going uphill, but it's all downhill from here. Not that we coast, but we have the wind behind us and we get to go because Jesus is for us. He's behind us. He's empowering us. And he's given us his word. And we've been born again by this living and abiding word. So we put away the poisons and we come again to this pure spiritual milk of the word so that our souls are satisfied. And we invite others to come and drink deeply and eagerly of this word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would do that work, causing us to delight in what is truly life-giving. That we wouldn't be bored when we come to the Bible, but that we would be amazed at what we see. That's the miracle we're asking for this morning. Do it by your spirit. Not so that we get all the mechanics right, but that we would come and taste and see and drink of this amazing word that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.